Unless you want to, it's the Ron and Don Show, starring Ron and Don, and sometimes me, at ronanddon.com. Hey, you guys, what's going on? Welcome to episode 427 now of the Ron and Don Show, and we are live from the Les Schwab Studios. What is up, Ron and Don Nation? Hey, coming up with the Ron and Don Show, we're going to talk about the things you should know about Zillow and Zestimates. Also, Elon Musk, is he really trying to get out of the Twitter purchase or... Is he just trying to drive the stock price down so then he can jump in a second time and scoop it up for a lot less money? And then what about the fight between him and the former president right now? Is this just all trumped up? Or is this real stuff going on here between Elon Musk and Donald Trump? Before we get to that, though, let's get to this. A lot of people during the pandemic have adopted to this remote work schedule. I know everybody, everybody that stays in my Airbnbs, nobody is really looking for a nursery anymore. No one is requesting high chairs. It used to be everybody was looking for a nursery, high chairs, we're having kids, all that stuff. Now, I don't think people had babies during the pandemic. They went and got dogs. So they want to know a couple things. These are the most common questions people ask me. Number one, how fast is your internet? They want to know how fast the internet is because chances are they're a remote worker. Number two, is a 30-day rental open for me? Because a lot of people want to come for 30, 60, 90 days. They don't want to come for a week. So 30-day rentals have become very, very popular, right? And then the other thing they want to know is how quick can I get food service here? How fast do Uber Eats come? Because I get rather hungry. And then the other thing that they want to know is they want to know about parking, long-term parking, Uh, if there's a place for their dog to go in the yard, because as I said, they're bringing their dog with them. So dogs, cats, all that stuff is very important because people are traveling with their animals now. And, and we're seeing, we're seeing some big tech companies flex their muscle and say, you know what, you're coming back to work, or at least you're coming back to work at least two days a week. I have a young man stand in one of my ADUs right now, and he is here. He's an intern for, uh, our good friends down at Amazon. And he's going to work maybe twice a week, and the rest of the time he is remote working. Ron, it's interesting. Holland has said this week that we are going to make remote working a thing. And I think here in the States is, is tech companies are saying, no, no, no. We paid a lot of money for this infrastructure. The word is out that you guys worked a lot better on your own. We don't think you did. We think it works better when you come back to work and you're in the office space and place and you're around other creative humans. Holland has said remote working, even remote learning, uh, that's about to become the law in Holland. Uh, do you think this blows up in Holland's face? I'm very concerned for Holland right now. Yeah, you're I can up. tell. Like you uh, are very concerned about them. The, the the law, the way I understood it in, in Holland was that if someone requested 
uh, could demonstrate that they could be a remote worker, that the employer would have to, that they would have a right under the law to petition to say, I can demonstrate I can do this job remotely. And the, the, the job would have to prove that, no, we need you here in person. In other words, if you're a, a cashier or you work in a factory or in a, a warehouse, you physically need to be there so you can't work remotely. So they're trying to codify the ability of someone to demonstrate, yes, I can do this remotely. The analysis they had that I hadn't really thought of, which I find very interesting, is to say, okay, if you want to codify this, that this category of job, whether it's a tech job that you just said, uh, there are some people like our transaction coordinator uh, works remotely. Uh, there are these categories of jobs. If you can prove that that is there, the, the, the critique on this article from Holland was, what's to stop big businesses there of going, okay, you want to be remote. Well, then I'm not going to pay you the same salary that I would pay someone that lives in downtown Seattle or lives in San Jose. I'm going to go to India or I'm going to go to Sri Lanka or I'm going to go uh, to another place in the world where there are highly educated people that have lots of tech skills and cost a fraction of the amount of money that you would cost to do the same job. So great. Yeah, we're going to be if you're going to force my hand where you don't have to come in to the to the job site anymore, then I'm going to go find a remote worker that's way more affordable to the company. And I hadn't really thought of that because we have so many people that live here uh, that do work remotely for the big tech companies. That kind of makes a lot of sense uh, that, that they are developing robots or developing algorithms or developing sources of people um, that can do this job and do this labor for way less money Seems like that would be a viable plan for the big tech companies. Yeah, well, I think when it comes to remote working, I, th I think it's here to stay. And I think remote workers now have leverage. Now they have leverage. But what is going to happen in the future? If you remember the last interview that Barack Obama did before he left the White House, he did the interview on a podcast. And he did the interview on a podcast on purpose because he knew that this was going to be the wave of the future as far as communicating goes. And in fact, uh, he's done a number of podcasts now with his wife and he has his Netflix deal. And he and Bruce Springsteen, I think, did 15 episodes of a, of a podcast. It's very good, by the way. Is it very good? It's very good. What do you like about it? Uh, the, the, they became friends through the wives they go through it's basically Barack Obama interviewing Bruce Springsteen and, he, and Bruce is such a fan. They're so mutually respect each other that they just tell you things that they wouldn't tell a normal interview. And they go back and try to weave together family history, race relations, American history, and their proximity uh, to the place where they grew up to sort of, overlay that onto what happened in their career and what happened to America. Yeah. It's very, I, I, it's very good. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to have to listen to those. That is, that, that is on my list to, to listen to. But what Barack Obama said is the thing that Americans and people around the world need to be concerned about is that your job may be replaced by artificial intelligence. And if it is replaced by artificial intelligence, then what is going to be your job in the future. And if you have kids, you probably think about that with your kids. You know, my son right now wants to be a race car driver and he wants to be a kindergarten helper. 
He doesn't want to be the actual teacher because he thinks that'd be too much pressure. But he liked to He's be a so kindergarten. He's so much more ambitious than I was as a kid. Yeah, I wanted at his age, and I this is not a joke. I wanted to be a garbage man because they only worked on Wednesdays. Yeah, and- I didn't realize there was a different route every day. <laughs> I was like, holy cow, this yeah. guy just shows up on Wednesday. He picks this thing up and then he's off for six days. Like that, that's my job. Yeah. He gets to drive a cool truck. Yeah. And anyway, leverage is an interesting thing. And and there may be some people staying at home. And if they do try to go back to work, they that that job may no longer exist. And the funky thing about our economy right now, typically when you have inflation that is out of control, you also have unemployment everywhere. And and that's we aren't seeing that. I I am seeing help wanted signs everywhere, which is yeah, crazy. that is a strange thing. Uh, unemployment and you you brought up though there are they, I don't know if that statistic counts the people that have just sort of opted out, uh, but yes, it, it is low unemployment, high inflation. It seems like I don't know. It seems like it's leveling out a little bit as we do this show today, but who knows. Yeah. All right, you guys, don't go anywhere. We'll see you on the other side. Just getting started. When the Martin family wanted to buy a house in Seattle for their son, Connor, after he got out of college, they turned to Ron and Don. Sent a message in their little portal. Got a message back within about five minutes from Don, and he set up a phone conference for about a half hour later. About two days later, we were out touring houses with him. Before they started working with Ron and Don, the Martins kept getting outbid. They just didn't realize how competitive the market is. But the guys worked tirelessly to find them the right house and then came up with a winning strategy to get it. They said, if we go in at this amount, we think we can we think we can jump ahead and have people close before uh, they intended to. And sure enough, it worked out. I don't think we'd have this house if, if it hadn't been for Ron and Don. And now their son has the perfect place for him and his two dogs. And the Martins say they couldn't have been more impressed with Ron and Don. I think both of them said at some point when we were apologizing at how many houses we looked at, said, we love looking at houses. They didn't hesitate to jump in and make this the house for us. It, they seemed very enthused for uh, you know a deal to get done and for us to be successful. And that felt really good. They were passionate and they, they were just honest and straightforward. And uh, no, everything's great. Uh, you know, I definitely recommend it. And if you're ready to buy like the Martins or sell, your journey starts with a Ron and Don sit down at ronanddon.com. You're listening to your old friends, Ron and Don, on the Ron and Don Radio Network, man. Hey, guys, welcome back to the Ron and Don Show. This is our our real estate segment, and it's kind of interesting because when we first got into the real estate game, I remember sitting in in rooms and in offices with other agents, uh, sometimes sitting in classes, and it was agents really trying to figure out, what do we do with these Redfin estimates what do we do with these zillow estimates because it's the number one question that everyone asks anytime we do a run it on sit down i would say eight times out of ten people know this estimate they know the redmond they get married to a number and they've seen that number and a lot of times that number becomes the driver if they're a seller for selling a house or if they're a buyer for buying a house new article out this week talks about the things that real estate agents wish that you knew about where these estimates come from and ron and i don't run from this estimate i take it i actually oftentimes will print it and i'll just put it right up on the refrigerator of a house that we're selling i'll do the same thing with the redfin estimate. I'm, I'm not afraid of those to talk about those uh 
But let's talk about this article, Ron, and I'll just throw out the three things and we'll get your thoughts. Uh, the number one thing they say that real estate agents wish that buyers and sellers knew is that the estimate that you're looking at may be out of date. Well, not only out of date, it may be flat out wrong. Um, and the thing that they raise, which I think most people will get once you explain it, is a Zestimate is an algorithm that's written by a software engineer. For Redfin, it's right here uh, locally in the Pacific Northwest is where the corporate headquarters are. So you get a bunch of mathematicians. Uh, and, and it is genius what they did. They said, what, how do we gather every piece of public information that we can? Uh, because you can go, there are databases that show neighborhoods and transactions. And there's something like the MLS has a, is one of the largest databases uh, in the world in terms of information like this. You have independent school scores. You have walk scores. There's all this data that's being generated. What if we got some smart math guys together and we collated all of that by zip code and we spit out a number that we think sight unseen based on these data points. And so the important thing, what I just said there is sight unseen. So they will take houses that are in the, in close proximity to each other and try to put a value on them. Well, they've never been to your house. They don't know if you're a, a someone that mows the lawn or doesn't mow the lawn. They don't know if you upgraded the kitchen or you didn't upgrade the kitchen. They don't know the condition of your house. They just know the data points of your house. And so for some people, the number is incredibly high. You'll get someone that's like, oh, my Zestimate is a million dollars. And then you go to their house and you're like, you haven't cleaned out the gutters since 1983. Or your countertops uh, have never been changed. They're four mica countertops uh, from when the house was built. And so that house, there's no way it's going to be worth a million. And then you'll have another client, same Zestimate number because they live in the same neighborhood. Then you go there and they've done all the upgrades. They've uh, swapped that area. The house is beautiful. Lawn is upgraded. Bathrooms are upgraded. Kitchens are upgraded. That house is probably worth more. So it's really understanding that number is as a ballpark range. And most people don't want to look at the range. They want to look at the top end number. And I think that that's a, it most of the time is a big mistake. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that they say, number two, is that sometimes a Zestimate doesn't give you a full picture. And that's correct because the Zestimate is based on square footage of other homes in your neighborhood that have recently been sold. And maybe homes in your neighborhood haven't recently been sold, depending on where you live. Maybe that hasn't happened. So there's not a lot of good data there. Uh, I have noticed in my neighborhood, my Zestimate go up and down just based on when a house sells on my street and what it, and what it sells for. And, and again, some of these homes that they're selling don't have the finishes. I, I built a custom home with very high-end finishes because I knew that's where the neighborhood was going. A lot of these homes that are being sold don't have the high-end finishes. They don't have the updates, as Ron was saying. But sometimes the Zestimate will be very similar because it's just looking at square footage. It's not looking at the fact that you went out and bought a $17,000 Thermador dual fuel stove and, and you don't have an, uh, you know, Panasonic LG stove, uh, a four burner, uh, electric stove, uh, parked in that home. I just threw a house on the East side that this estimate, it looks like it's going to be off by over $600,000. Yeah. They priced it initially months ago at this estimate. It's already come down 400,000. And I told the agent, I think it's still a couple hundred grand uh, high. And so that that client 
that was married to their Zestimate is probably looking at a $600,000 haircut. Yeah, and don't forget what Zillow does is soon as many times when the house is listed for a certain number, they'll they'll change their Zestimate to that number that the house is. <laughs> and, and so when the house sells, they end up getting credit for selling that particular home at the Zestimate number, and they pat themselves on the back. What they don't tell you is that the Zestimate before the house was put up for sale is completely different. And then to create some kind of accuracy, uh, they will change that Zestimate, the algorithm will, when you put that house up for sale. And you're like, wow, that's it. Like my next door neighbor is getting ready to sell his house. I think it goes on this weekend. Watch the Zestimate change from what it currently is. Uh, it will change to what the realtor has decided that house is worth. So, And then finally, this is something that that people don't understand and agents don't tell you this. Even agents in our own office that do this, they don't tell each other. And I don't know why. And there's some kind of shame behind it. But you have to understand the way that Zillow works is it is real estate agents that are out buying leads from Zillow. And so a lot of times when you see a particular home and you see those agents on the right or left that say, hey, give this agent a call, you think you're calling the listing agent, you're not. You are calling an agent that has paid a lot of money to be on that page and that zip code. And when you call, again, the person, and and we'll use Kevin's house as an example, you're not talking to the agent that is representing my next door neighbor's house. You're talking to an agent in the area that may be paying thousands of dollars. It's the person that bid the most. Yeah. So they've paid thousands of dollars to be in that zip code. You're calling them. And then they have to figure out, because a lot of times they don't know anything about the house. And they're like, hey, I'll call you back. And then they have to jump online, educate themselves about the property, and then call you back and set up a showing. So that's the way Zillow makes money, is selling leads to agents. And for some reason, agents don't want to talk about this. Yeah, it is odd. And, And it's a little disingenuous the way they present the page. Because it sure looks like I, I don't blame consumers for this because it's consu- it's confusing. When you look at that page, it appears as if that agent is connected with this house because it says contact me for a showing. And then there's a couple other pictures below them. But if you're a consumer, that would make sense. Like if I did this the same thing with cars, if I'm on Don O'Neill's car lot. And a picture of Don O'Neill pops up and says, hey, call me to, to talk about this car. I would, I'm assuming that you're the guy from the car lot, right? Because your picture is right there next to the car. Um, with the house, though, it is disingenuous in a way to not. And I'm sure there's somewhere on a fine print that says this is you know not affiliated with the house. But they've done a... a seamless job of making it appear like that person is connected to the house when in reality they've won an auction to pay the most to be displayed in that zip code yeah they pay a lot of money uh there there are real estate businesses out there that spend so much money on zillow leads uh that their margins are very small but that's how they drive business and then they become totally dependent on those zillow leads and zillow knew that and that's why you saw Zillow last year say, you know what we're going to do is we're going to go out and re- Zillow is trying to replace the real estate agent. That's why they went out and they bought all those homes and they said, we don't need agents to sell these homes. We're going to sell them ourselves. And and that didn't work and it blew up in their faces. And it'll be interesting to see the relationship between the agent and Zillow going forward. 
because the many agents that I know are very dependent on their Zillow leads. If they didn't have them, they wouldn't do any business and they pay a lot of money for them. And again, their, their margins are much smaller because of that. The leads are very, very expensive. And, and on the other hand, Zillow is trying to put that same agent out of business. <laughs> they are in Redfin. There's a, there's a 60 minutes piece with the, the CEO of Redfin here locally uh, talking about uh, what they're trying to do. And it's similar. It's the belief that technology can, can replace the human being. And maybe one day that might be true, but boy, every transaction that we do is so complicated and so bespoke and requires individual nursing, so to speak, to get it from here to there. Very, very rarely do you have just a boilerplate uh, transaction go without a hitch. Yeah, I can I can see doing that like in a condo community where all the condos are the same and everything is sold by square footage. Homes in Seattle aren't sold by square footage. They're sold by condition, where the property's at, where it sits on the lot, what the neighborhood is it's in, and can we do some parking? What are the schools like? All that stuff. So it, it as long as you have neighborhood real estate, that looks very, very different. Like all our homes here in a lot of places look very, very different. Some have been updated. Some haven't. But in when most of the homes were built here were the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Uh, and, and that building was very sparse and spread out. And then after world war II, uh, you had a lot of war boxes go up as a result of that. So, and it's just scattered all over the place now. And now you have a lot of homes that have been torn down, new construction or adding on to. So I think as long as real estate is unique, uh, I think the buyers and sellers will remain unique and you'll need a human being somehow to be involved in that transaction. But for, uh, you know, a palace of condos of 500 condos where everything looks the same, then I, then I, I, I think you'll see more artificial intelligence involved uh, in those transactions moving forward. Back in 60 seconds, you guys. Hey, you guys, Ron and Don with Mitch Not Loans. This just happened yesterday. We closed on a house. This house was listed for around 125. We had to go to one seven something something to beat a cash offer and to land this house we had to go over one seven in the middle of this negotiation our buyer lost their financing and it wasn't their fault mitch steps in saves the day we beat a cash offer we land the house right we absolutely did, and that felt great for them. They had to switch financers mid pr- mid process, and we jumped in and helped, and we closed quick. Um, you know, when you're going against a cash offer, a lot of people want to close in 15, 21 days, whatever it is. Uh, Ron and Don asked, "How quick can we close?" And we were end up able to close in time to beat a cash offer. Yeah, and that's the thing I like about you, Mitch, is if if someone has a big bank loan uh, out of North Carolina, they're not answering their phone on a Saturday when we're putting this offer together. You picked up your phone. You got me that pre-approval. We got the deal done. Closed that yesterday. If you want Mitch to be on your team like he was on this deal, go to Mitch.loans right now. One half percent of your loan value can come back to you in various forms. Mitch will explain that to you. Mitch.loans. All right, you guys, welcome back to the final segment. If, you, if you've listened to us for a long time, you know how we feel about the former president, although I think we've been very fair to him. Uh, I think some things that we have learned in the January 6th uh, investigation have been very, very alarming. Very alarming. Just very alarming. I don't want to go down that road, though. I do want to go down this road, though. I think the former president wouldn't be president without Twitter. 
I think when the former president saw Elon Musk signaling that he was going to buy Twitter, I think he felt like, wow, I can get back on Twitter here. If it wasn't for Twitter, January 6th doesn't happen. It's driven by Twitter, right? If it's not for Twitter, he does not become president. So now you have Elon Musk who said, well, I was going to buy Twitter, but I think you guys have a lot of bots here. You don't have bodies, you have bots. So I am no longer interested. He's trying to back out. And what Twitter is saying, well, you damaged the brand that you're trying to buy. And so now they're in litigation over this. I think what Elon Musk is trying to do, I think he still wants Twitter. He just doesn't want to buy it at the top of the market because he probably doesn't have to. So I think he wants to back out and, and then back on in. He has signaled that he has voted for Democrats in the past. He'd like to vote for a Republican. But I don't think he wants to vote for Donald Trump. I think he wants to vote for someone else. I do think if Elon Musk, though, controls Twitter, I think he controls Donald Trump, and I think he likes that and likes having that kind of power. These guys are in a spat now, and they're going back and forth, and uh, they are saying some mean things to each other. Sometimes you do this, Ron, just to drum up Twitter business. What do you think is going on here? A double-barrel question. One, does Elon Musk, is he buying Twitter? And two, is that the former president's path back to the presidency? Okay, let's take these one at a time. my personal thing on on uh, Elon and Twitter is that he loves to be a muckraker. Elon Musk does. He goes out on Twitter and loves to stir things up. When he put that offer in, Tesla stock, which is his largest, most profitable thing, uh, was up in the 900s. Sometimes it was bumping up into the thousands, uh, over $1,000 per share. And this is after several stock splits. It was doing very, very well. After he made that bid for Twitter, the stock price now is around $700 and sometimes goes into the 650s, uh, down close to 600. And so it has lost 30 to 40% of its value. And, and that has translated into tens of billions of dollars in losses uh, for Elon Musk. So I, I think one is he's looking at that and going, wow, I back when it was $1,000 a share, I could buy this for $44 billion and it's, it's a lot of money, but it's, it doesn't, I, I can absorb it. Now that he's lost so much money in that Twitter valuation or the, the Tesla valuation, it now, it now is hurting him. The thing that he did, and I just listened to a big piece on this from the Washington Post, he waived his due diligence period in the contract that he wrote with Twitter. In, in a corporate takeover like that, typically there is a due diligence um, section of the contract. Elon Musk waived it. He was very arrogant, very condescending uh, about how he approached this deal, and he was very public about it. And so he was trying to be a big shot and waiving it. Um, the legal analysis that I heard, um, there's, a, there's a concept called specific performance, and this happens in real estate sometimes. I'll explain it in real estate, and then I'll translate it over to, to Twitter. Let's say that I want to sell my house. And I put it on the market for a million dollars. And then someone comes along and they offer me a million dollars and I sign their, their offer. We're now, we've now struck a deal that they're going to buy my house for a million. I'm going to sell my house for a million. So as we go along through this transaction, we're going to close the transaction. Me as the seller, something happens to where I have second thoughts. I was like, you know what? I no longer want to sell this house. Um, something happened in my life. I, I now want to stay here. I'm going to back out. So I go to all the parties and I say, hey, um, I'm backing out of this deal. The house is no longer for sale. 
Those buyers can sue me to sell the house, force me to sell the house. They can go for a judge and claim specific performance and say, we have performed. This person put something up for sale. Um, we agreed on terms. We are performing. We have the money to purchase this house. Most likely a judge, and this happens not frequently, but it has happened in Washington State, that judge is going to look at me and say, you have to sell this house. Sorry that you had a change of heart, but you have to perform. And so the, the court will force me to complete the transaction because it was a viable contract, specific performance. They, the, the Twitter people are invoking this clause, a legal clause saying, we are suing you for specific performance. We have performed on the deal. You waived your due diligence uh, clause. Um, you've asked us for information. We've given you the information and we are suing you to perform. You need to buy it for the amount you said is in the contract and we're not letting you out of it. And most legal scholars look at this and say, Twitter has the upper hand in this case. Elon Musk is going, well, this will be great because under discovery, I'm going to really get to the bottom of how many bots you have. But I don't believe he wrote into the contract um, in the due diligence phase that he had a clean out on the number of bots. He's claiming he does, but the legal analysis I've heard don't think that he does. Yeah. It's like owning a boat. Twitter's like owning a boat for him. You don't, you don't want to own this boat because you have to maintain this boat and you have to keep this boat floating. And when people come onto your boats, like my friend Laura told me the other day, she said, you're the only one that has ever offered me money when you've come aboard my boat to help pay for gas. She goes, people rides all the time. She says, nobody offers to bring any money to pay for gas. Sometimes people bring food. Sometimes they bring red wine, which is the wrong thing to bring. But, but it is so much more fun to just show up and bring the wine and bring the beer, uh, bring your friends. Dance on the bow. Yeah. Bring the music, whatever that is, the playlist. It's so much more fun just to show up be the life of the party, uh, leave a few dollars for fuel and then leave. And you have no responsibility toward that boat. It's the same thing here for Elon Musk. I, I think it's been fun for him to show up and just kind of blast away on Twitter and then disappear for nine days. This is very, very different now when you own it. And I think it puts him in a position where he doesn't get to be the cowboy anymore, or he doesn't be, he doesn't get to be the guy throwing the boat party you now own the boat and the responsibilities that go with that. And if you're a boat owner, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, your, not a, it's not a lot of fun. To your second question, uh, my personal hope is that that will be a small fish to fry on whether Elon influences him uh, because I'm hoping that after this just tsunami of evidence with the January 6th hearing, that that won't even be on the radar screen anymore, yeah. if you get my drift. All right, you guys, thanks for listening to the Ron and Don Show. We appreciate that. If you need us, just reach out, ronanddonsitdown.com. We can do a sit-down today. Also, if you need a buyer or player sell book, uh, reach out to Ron, ron at ronanddon.com. We can send you one. And also, don't forget, if you want to advertise on this podcast, reach out to me, don at ronanddon.com, and we can have a conversation today. Mitch.loans, if you need a loan, Les Schwab Tires if you need some tires, and Ron and Don Sit Down if you need some real estate agents. Thanks for letting us be your agents, your brokers, 
your broadcasters, and your friends. Head up, shoulders back. We'll see you next time right here for episode 428. Oh, on the Ron and Don Radio Network. Now keep your head up and your shoulders back. And keep blowing that trumpet, and we'll see you next time. Only! 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 On the Ron and Don Radio Network.